Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to the Health Lab Podcast. I am your host, Joel Blant. Today's episode, episode number eight, lucky number eight, features Travis Streb. Travis is a coach. He's a workshop leader. He hosts his own podcast called the Men at Work Podcast. He he works a lot with coaching men. And for over a decade, he's been working with leaders, uh, men in particular, but women also on really trying to shape their impact on both themselves and the world around them. So really want to get curious with Travis about his approach to coaching, um, some of the excess successes that he experiences, some of the breakthroughs that he has seen over the years. A um, little more about Travis. He is a father. He is a husband. Aside from that, he is a high-level endurance athlete. In fact, uh, there was a one-year period where he uh, rode his bike up Mount Seymour every single day for a year. Uh, don't know the elevation of that, but it is a mountain um, for anyone familiar with Mount Seymour on the North Shore of Vancouver. Rode his bike up and down Mount Seymour every day for a year, um, raising money for pancreatic cancer research. So kind of an interesting guy all around. So really excited to get down to business with him. So let's get into it with Travis Strip. All right, Travis Streb, thank you so much for joining me in the Health Lab. Joel, Nass, good to be here. I know this has been a few weeks in the making, but um, it's good. It's good. It's good to be on the show. I must say, as a as a podcast host myself, it's nice to be able to relax a little bit. And um, I love what you guys have going on here. Awesome. Yeah, be, be on the other side of things. <laughs> Absolutely. Indeed. And you know, I, I want to touch base about that. I kind of want to start with that. Um, you know, you wear a few different hats. You work as a consultant, uh, a coach, a workshop facilitator, and as, as you mentioned, a podcaster as well. And, and I'm curious, what, what got you into, into that stream of things? What led you down that road? The road of podcasting or the road of coaching? All, all of it. The, the all-encompassing Travis Streb road. Uh, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of layers, as you said, um, the, I mean, the, my, my primary, you know, job that actually pays me money is coaching, um, and workshop facilitation as well. But, you know, that, that I came at really early. I mean, I've been coaching for almost my entire life. And, uh, I say that very honestly in the sense that my, my childhood involved me being not very good at a lot of sports, um, but always good enough, just good enough to make the team. And um, uh, most of the time I would spend either sitting on the sidelines, playing soccer in particular, or uh, being in goal, playing goalie. And uh, the coaching staff always loved how well I coached. The co <laughs> so coached other players or, or coached our Coached our team, yeah. I got the nickname coach on several occasions. And then finally, finally, um, this, this kept happening to me playing soccer, playing basketball in grade nine, I was the last person picked for the soccer team, um, for the good team at my high school. And my coach was, a, he was a very honest man. And he approached me and said, Hey, I just need you to know that like, you're not going to get a lot of time on the field this year. Um, you're going to practice with us and we were, it's only one game a week and three or four practices. But the reason that I picked you is 
your energy and tenacity is just contagious. He's like, I see you working, you know, the amount of energy you bring and, and, you know, you're like a third coach on the team. So if you're down with that, you can, you know, by all means join the team. And I did. And, and uh, from there, I obviously went on to pursue a career in, in coaching. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of, I mean, coaching is only is for, for me is one on one, but I I do a lot of what I call group coaching. We call it facilitation, but mm-hmm. around leadership, I coach around leadership. Um, I run workshops around it, but the whether I'm in a workshop or one on one, it's the same. You know, I'm working with someone to help them see a part of themselves or a part of the team that they wouldn't see on their own. It's the same thing that you would do on a sports field. The same thing you would do. Uh, you know, perhaps even conducting an orchestra, though I've never done that. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, though, the the third string, you know, it's coming in here. Like we've got coaching, we've got some consulting facilitation. The, the podcast I host called Men at Work is a result of my time spent coaching and consulting and, and facilitating is that I kept coming across situations primarily in, you know, in the corporate world where I was being brought in to work with men. And specifically to work with men? No, but I was working with senior leaders and the, you know, the, the sad reality of our current corporate world in North America is that the, ma- the vast majority of our corporate leaders are men. Mm-hmm. And so by definition, I'm going to end up working with a lot of men. And one of the things I started to notice was the, the, the way in which, the way in which men were trying to create more, we'll call it at least gender diverse organizations, was primarily through them helping other people. So, in in the in the case of gender, it would be men really helping women or creating programs for women to succeed, which is really important. And the the area though that I that is was missing and I think it's still missing today. And part of the reason that the podcast exists and my work exists is that the men and I'll say, we were less willing to look inside or to look at each other mm-hmm. and go, Hey, part of allyship for any kind of diversity, well, you know, I, I talk primarily about gender, but for any kind of diversity, allyship is often about actually flipping that and going, the one of the best ways for me to help you is actually for me to help myself as it were and to do the the deeper inner work to discover why i may have certain biases or why my perspective is is you know is the way it is what um what filters do i have and so part of the men at work podcast is is exploring the role of men in in reshaping the future primarily by looking at ourselves and going, Hey, how are we, you know, I don't want to say broken, but where are we for lack of a better term, where are we messed up and where do we need to be doing the work as well? Not just reaching out a hand to help others. So fostering that introspective thinking, that introspective questioning, it sounds like. Yeah, that and, and, at least in my opinion, getting together with other men, which is complete. I mean, if you bring that into a corporation, it's like, well, we actually, you know, 
my solution is like, maybe we need to have corporate men's groups. It's not going to fly very easily. But if you get below the surface, you're like, well, the, it's not the point of, the, of having, having men to get together isn't to, you know, create more dominance. Right. Which we are, you know, we've got plenty of that, 10,000, thousands of years of it. It's actually about if you shape the conversation correctly, going, hey, we all have this kind of shared desire for a better future. We, as the, the dominant um, leaders for the last, you know, thousands of years, need to probably look at ourselves and each other uh, to figure out what went wrong and how we can help create something better. That's, that's interesting. And I like how you, I, I'm going to come back to what you said at the start about athletics, because I know you have an athletic history that sounds like it might have been a little bit more successful than previous experiences playing sports throughout elementary school and high school. So I, I want to touch on that a little bit later, but uh, let's focus on, on, on the men's work for now. Do you, do you ever come across roadblocks, challenges in, in coaching men, in, in fostering that you know, introspective thought for the greater good of the organization or, or the group as a whole? I don't, yeah, I mean, I could, I guess there's like, there's blocks everywhere for every human being. We've all, we've all are, you know, we, we know now that our parents have messed us up in some way. And our part of our job is to unwind that as we mature and develop. Indeed. You know, when it comes to, to men in particular, though, I think the hardest, the hardest piece is the deeper emotional work of actually understanding what it, not even understanding feeling what's going on inside of our bodies and then being able to respond to that not react to it so as an example um an easy one right a lot of a lot of us all of us are going to have judgments or resentments about people and in the workplace this shows up all the time right they're not these aren't you know they're not going to be massive judgments or huge resentments but they show up certainly and, and and in my experience, men are less apt to handle those because we, for, for better or for worse, have been programmed to think rationally or to work rationally. When you're working with a judgment, it's like you get a trigger. It's like an emotional response. And we don't know what to do with it. We're less apt at handling it. Slam your fist on the table and... Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I think there, it comes out in more subtle ways corporately. Yeah, there's, there's always extreme examples. But generally what happens is it leaks out in other ways. So it leaks out through language. It might leak out through body language. It might leak out uh, in a, an offhanded statement. It doesn't need to be outward aggression. Mm -hmm. And I think, but at, at the core of it, though, is there's an, there's an emotional trigger and I think that's the, the, a common block that I certainly come across in, in my work with men. Um, you know, I, I'm involved in the men's work community more broadly as well. I lead in men's groups. So I'm in, I'm in a couple of men's groups. So I, see, I interact with a lot of men um, in particular around this. So I know it's a block and it's, it's, it's not like I haven't had the block and I don't still have it. Mm -hmm. It's more just that it, I, I see it showing up a lot. So is, is it an attempt to address that emotional trigger in a different manner or recognize it or subdue it? Well, in the case of a judgment or a resentment, it's a question of clearing it, in my opinion, which is to own it. 
to acknowledge you have it, to have the emotional maturity to realize that it's probably you. You know, any judgment we have about somebody else is usually about ourselves. And, and then to figure out how you want to transmute that into something different. So you've got a judgment about someone. How can you take the judgment and not let it run whatever conversation you're about to have with them, whatever communication you're going to have with them, but instead to transmute that into empathy and to recognize that it's just you, um, which is really hard to do, uh, but also not. Once you get used to the idea and you start to see that all the judgments and resentments that you have and that I have are just judgments and resentments about myself. Mm. It's, it sounds like it's kind of like, well, you, you said it gets easier. It's kind of like riding a bike. The more that you do it, the more that you engage in it, likely the better you'll get at it. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you really want to get good at it for the listeners out there, next time you get together with your family, that's kind of like mastery. If you can identify the trigger and the judgment about your family member and then transmute that into love in some way you know then you've really achieved master status in my opinion that is high level communication there yeah that's that would be the that would be you would know you've achieved mastery at that point indeed and i mean in terms of you you know facilitating this and and, and coaching individuals on that level and you know leading workshops and what have you that are essentially transformative um have you yourself had, had similar experiences, transformative experiences that have influenced your approach with other individuals? Yeah, I have, and, and I continue to have them. Um, one of the rules that, I shouldn't say rules, <laughs> one of the, the mantras that one of my teachers talks about a lot is you can only, you can only take someone in a workshop or as a client, you can only take someone as deep as you've gone yourself. And so I spend a huge amount of time, money, energy on my own coach, uh, my own men's group I'm part of, my own leadership program I'm part of every year so that I continue to have them and I continue to uncover my own layers. And it's, it's one of the most important things that I do. Um, in terms of how I'm going to serve people on the planet is to take myself to a place that um, I wouldn't go on my own. So, so yeah, they continue to happen. And, and I think for, for anyone who's in this game, as it were, I think that's an important mantra, which is you can only take someone as deep as you've ever gone yourself. And so if you're trying to take someone to a place that's, even remotely deep and you haven't even cracked your own surface, it's going to be hard to get there. Do you feel, do you feel comfortable sharing any experiences that you have had along that journey for yourself? Absolutely. You know, I think the, you know, the, the big one or a big one that I remember was my, I'm the, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm the child of, of late divorce. So my parents got separated when I was about 20 and uh, one of the things that I, that I had done unconsciously and that my, my teacher re helped reveal to me or my coach at the time was that for, for years, I made my dad the one that was wrong. You know, he was the one that left and, and you know, whatever. I, it wasn't, wasn't my relationship. It was him and my mom. 
but I'd made him wrong and made my mom right. And then I wondered why my relationship with my dad sucked. Mm. Like it wasn't the one that I wanted it to be. Well, part of it was just kind of going back to the judgment pieces. I had this kind of background judgment of him just playing. So even though you can be somewhat aware of it, it was just running in the background. And it wasn't until I decided to, to stop making him wrong that the relationship got better. Hmm. So it's, a, it's, it's, but I, you, it's a, it was impossible for me to have seen that myself. You know, that's such an interesting revelation that you had. And I've got a very similar experience to a degree. Well, anecdotally, my parents got separated when I was 28. Um, and um, I, I, I can't say I, you know, scapegoated one or the other, or, you know, put the blame on either one, but, but it did shape my view of relationships. And I always, I always looked at them. They had been married for, I don't know, 30, 32 years or something like that prior to their separation. And I always had looked at them as being kind of the gold standard of a successful marriage, a successful relationship. And then when that happened, just all my walls came crumbling down. Um, I was in a long-term relationship at the time to the woman that I'm married to now. Um, and we had always talked about getting married, but it took me several years to overcome um, that kind of mental block of, of what marriage is based on what I had set them up to be, my parents being that. And actually through coaching and, and working with a coach of my own, it really helped to break that barrier down. So kind of a similar experience that I, uh, I had. Yeah, but those kinds of unwindings, they, in my, in my view, they, they just run us so much more than we think. And I mean, there's a lot of research around this, around you know, the, the, the things that happen to you when you're a child, and they don't need to be severe trauma, but just the way you're raised. Um, they imprint in your nervous system and they just run. And it's, it's, I shouldn't say impossible, but it's certainly in my experience, it's almost impossible to kind of self-coach your way out of that, to be objective about your own experience and your own subconscious patterns. And so it's important if you really want to, improve the way that improve your impact in the world that you go and find someone who can help you go there. And maybe it's a, maybe it's a men's group. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a, maybe it's therapy. Maybe there's so many different modalities, but some way to get another view into your own mind and into your body mind, if you will. Someone to just at least help guide you along the way to self-discovery, self-improvement, to addressing these roadblocks. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, and, and not just for you, but but for the future. You know, I mean, I've, I have two kids, two girls. They're uh, almost 14 and, and 10 years old. I mean, the, I, I don't think, I don't know if I'd be motivated enough to continue doing the work just for me. But really, it's about establishing, an, you know, a, a new pattern for the future. Now, I know that already if my kids are over seven years old i've already done that you know the damage or whatever it's going to be you know we're all going to do damage to our kids but part of it is being able to set a different tone a different relational pattern so you know if i came from a you know the relational pattern i was taught it wasn't exactly productive for my parents so how do i establish a new one for my girls so that they could have a new one for their kids and you know you really can start to shape the future if you think about it in terms of generations as opposed to just me improving my life because 
So but quite honestly, it's, it's quite a bit of pain. It hurts when you realize that your own subjective reality isn't the same as, as you know, truth. Mm-hmm. And so to put yourself through these experiences is not, it's, it's got its own reward, but in my opinion, the reward's got to be deeper than just, I've got a richer life. There's got to be some sort of altruism there or, or for the benefit of others, it sounds like. Yeah, the benefit of the planet, the benefit of the future, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I think that ties in, ties in a lot to what you do in terms of fostering and developing leadership. And I know you do a lot of work on, and you talk a lot about embodiment and embodied leadership. Can, can you speak to more about embodiment and, and, and what that means with respect to being a leader? Well, yeah, I mean, it's timely. I'm actually in the midst of writing the, the first draft of my book. The working title is Leadership as a Transmission. And it's, it's really about that idea that we're t- I'm talking about leadership here, which really for me is you're trying, you know, if, you, if you're a leader, you're trying to create some kind of future that doesn't exist today, whether it's in a huge company or whether it's on your own or a startup or in your relationship, if you're leading something that's in my view, leadership. So the embodiment of that though, or embodied leadership is about taking these, these important, but often heady leadership topics and actually installing them in the nervous system like a program. So let me, I want to make sure I break that down because that's, it's a bit ethereal. So please, please do <laughs> leadership. I ask this question all the time. Like, how did you learn leadership? I talk to leaders all the time and, and mostly it's, it's from a book, several books, podcasts like this, programs, courses, whatever it might be. And a lot of it is, it gets installed in the mind. So there, we're learning, and which is important. So I, I don't want to discount this. So we're taking these concepts in and we're thinking about them and we're, we want to, but primarily we're learning to understand them. So I could learn leadership and I could teach it to you. You could learn it. And yet, as you go out in the world or I go out in the world and try to do it, it doesn't work because it hasn't been installed at a nervous system level. And so in my experience, leadership gets taught maybe like less than 5% of it gets taught in the, how do you actually do it? How does it occur to everyone else the way you're leading? And most of it, 95 plus percent gets taught, like, can you understand it and learn it? The theoretical concept of it. Yeah, the, the, the theory of it. But part, I mean, I talk to people that in their own minds, they're these amazing leaders. But their embodiment of their values, of their visions, of the purpose they hold deep is so weak that it just, it comes out like yogurt, shall we say. Like not a lot, of, it's just, it's kind of ethereal, not a lot of substance to it. Mm-hmm. And so... In, in my work, I'm, I'm primarily interested in taking these, taking core leadership concepts and installing them as a nervous system change so that when, when a leader is going out in to lead whatever it is they're leading, people can actually feel them more deeply. They can actually feel that they're a transmission of something, whatever it is. And I, I've also got a hunch that that's really what people are craving 
I mean, there was, there's, there's enough strategy and smarts and intelligence out there in the leaders that we have, or at least most of them. What there's a dearth of is the embodiment of all of that. And when people, when, when you see people that kind of have it, there's a certain feeling that people get around them. And that's what I want to create more of. So is, is that a big part of, of workshops that you lead is actually, you know, stepping into that role and, and say role playing it or, or, or workshopping it out? So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's more, more than role playing it out because it's going to often occur to people as like, oh, I just need to tweak my body language. Ooh, it's not, it's not quite that simple. So it's, an, it's kind of an inside out process. So the first thing I want people to do is really get clear or get clean, excuse me, like get clean with what's all the muck in their system, all the habitual thoughts they're having, the judgments, resentments, all that kind of stuff. What are all the blocks in their way? Get clean with that before they can even step into it. So then there's the clarity piece. So getting clear, which is like, well, where, what are you really trying to create more of on the planet? What's the deepest mission you could possibly be living out right now? Who are you serving? So getting clear on direction. What do you want to be a transmission of? Mm. Defining, so like, defining the purpose. Very clear. Like, are you, do you want to be a transmission of, of more depth as a leader? Do you want to be a transmission of, of, of purpose? Do you want to be a transmission of calm? Like, what are you trying to transmit? Then, then it's about, okay, well, how do we install that? And it often is not as simple as like, well, you need to hold eye contact longer. Some, sometimes and often it's like, oh, the, the, biggest, the biggest roadblock I'm feeling is you're breathing, you're only breathing into the top of your lungs. So it's very hard to be relaxed around you. So yeah, you're, you're, you found a way to, to hack your way through moving, you moving your hands more slowly when you speak because you learned that in some course, but it's not, it's not installed. It's just, a, it's just some kind of habitual response you've created. It's so it's like a lot of, a lot of it is more subtle and it's deeper than that. And so that's really what I'm, what I'm creating um, in my one-on-one -on -one clients. And then of course, in, in the workshops I lead. It's, I, I like that you mentioned that, that it's just so about, well, just the practical, doing. Um, every, every I, t I do a lot of professional development. Um, I take courses on, you know, addressing mood issues, you know, PTSD, communication, assertive communication, what have you. A lot of occupational therapy specific coursework. But on, on the other side, I do a lot of coaching coursework as well too. And every single coaching course that I've taken has been, Typically, it's over a longer weekend, you know, three to four days, eight hour days, and you are maybe sitting down and being delivered a lesson for no longer than 15 minutes at a time. And other than that, you are coaching and you are doing and you're just, you're embodying it, just like you described and doing it in that fashion, from my experience, having gone to different types of courses has been the most invaluable way to imprint that essentially that that muscle memory into my system for 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 doing such doing such work with individuals and with groups yeah it, it's it's at the core of it um and i i want to highlight that the theory is important and i'm glad we have it 
it's more that I think the balance is a little out of sway. Like, I don't think we should just all go, you know, let's just practice whatever and see what happens. It's nice to have some structure around it. But now that we have so much structure, I wonder, my view is we need to work more on, on the transmission of that, how that, how that occurs to everybody else. I think that's, that's valid. If you're, if you're doing heart surgery, you should probably know a little bit about what connects to what. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I'm, I'm a huge fan of learning and, and intelligence and smarts. <laughs> Indeed. So, I mean, you mentioned a book. That's, that's awesome. What's, what's going on there? Can you talk more about that? Well, I was in the, in the middle of, the, of our current pandemic. I was trying to feel into what, what it was that I wanted to create. And I've been leading workshops for many years, doing coaching and, and uh, I've got the podcast and run a men's group. And I've got these areas where I'm making impact. But part of the thing was I, I kept having conversations with people about the one we just had, which is around trend, the transmission of leadership. How is it occurring to other people? You know, is it, is it clear? What's the signal people are getting? And I realized one of the best ways for me to get that idea out there through a book and so i have uh embarked on this journey to to write one and um it's well underway i don't have a date yet but um but i've got a good team working with me so i feel confident that i'll get there that's awesome man good for you what a what a good goal to uh to set your sights on it's ironic though because i struggled a bit with it because i've often talked to clients who um who read a lot of books and I often ask them, okay, what are you doing about the book that you just read? So you've just told me, you've, you've kind of let me know about a book you're reading. What have you done? Like, so now you have more knowledge in your head. Great. What's changed. Right. And the answer is generally not much. <laughs> and so, so I was a bit, you know, a bit reserved, but I'm, I'm trying to find ways to, to, to keep the book, you know, part esoteric and ethereal. I want to, I want to make sure there's some of that element, some good structure, but also here's what you can do. Right. How, how do you put this into action? Just like we've been talking about, how do you, how do you embody that? Yeah. 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 And, and you, you, you said, of course, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the difference between theory and, and action and, and, and practical strategies here. And obviously both are, are highly important. And you mentioned that you've read, you know, many books related to say, you know, coaching, personal development, leadership, what have you. Are, are there any specific books that you could recommend to any of our listeners out there that have been influential to you on your journey? <sighs> the most influential. You know, I think the one of the ones that pops out for me is 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 called the way of the superior man by david data it's an old book uh and it it does sound a bit like a um manifesto for um <laughs> for male dominance but it's not <laughs> it's really a manifesto about about the the future of men's work and um and really what it what it what it could mean to be a man of integrity and depth and purpose in the 21st century. Um, that was the, the book that really got me into working with my current teacher and, um, and working more with David and, and starting my own men's group and, and that path. So it, it's also um, a book that I read once and then 
I read it again over an entire year. So it's got 52 chapters in it. So it lends very well to that. And I read a chapter a week and I was committed to, okay, every week I'm going to try. And the chapters are short, two pages long. I'm going to read the chapter every single day and I'm going to do something and journal about it every single day so that there's a, an embodiment of this book. So it sticks out for me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm finding more that, that the, the like ancient texts tend to tend to have a lot in them. Like the Tao Te Ching is like, okay. you know, great, great one to pick up. Mm -hmm. There's also a book that um, it's, it's just coming to me now that I actually picked up uh, on a whim at, at a, uh, a book giveaway on Denman Island where I'm at right now at, at our ca cabin. And it's called Leadership as an Art by Max Dupree. Okay. It's very short. It's a thin book. But the amount of wisdom packed in there is unbelievable. I believe, I, I might get this wrong, but he was the CEO. I think it was Herman Miller. Uh, it was an office um, furniture manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. But the wisdom with which he wrote and the concepts that he brought forward, it was still refreshing to read it in a... In a um, in a very matter of fact, to the point tone, as opposed to the, you know, 300 page epics that we sometimes see on the shelves. There was just a lot packed into a hundred pages. Condensed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I endeavor to hit the sweet spot between, I guess, Max Dupree and, and David Data when I write my book. Uh, I don't know how close I'll land. Those are pretty famous books, but we'll see what happens. Good thing to set your sights on. And we'll, uh, we'll put those books in the, uh, in the show notes as well. Right. Too. And if I ever write the Tao Te Ching, well, I, you know, I know, I'll know I've made it. Indeed. Yes. That's kind of the pinnacle of human achievement. I, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. And, and thanks for that. I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll look into those deeper, deeper myself. I haven't read any of those. Yeah. That they're, they're a good, a good place to start. Um, although, yeah, as long as you do something with them. <laughs> Very valid. And, and, and talking about, well, leadership and, and doing and having important conversations with people. I, I know you, you, well, you talk a lot about conversations. And I, I know in terms of your fostering leaders and, and working with leaders, you, you pinpointed three conversations specifically. Um, one was a conversation you're having with yourself. So getting kind of like we've talked about getting introspective, learning more about yourself, strengths, weaknesses, what makes you tick, um, conversation you're having with others, how you approach communicating with others, um, how you carry yourself in this world. And then the last one really spoke well to me. And that was the conversation other people are having about you when you're not around. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why it's so important in leadership development? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I wanna make a distinction here because people are gonna talk about you no matter what um, in an organization. And of course, you know, you'd, you'd like the texture of that to be positive, but it depends. I mean, there are some people who are gonna talk about you who have zero influence you know, they, they, may, they may be so caught up in their own habitual thought patterns that you don't really care actually what they have to say about you. And, and um, so I'd say that might fall into a category of like, I don't actually care what that person is, is saying about me. But by and large, it's like, 
what are the what are the feelings, thoughts, and perceptions others are having as you interact with them? How are you making them feel? Are you are you like do they feel challenged? Do they feel good, bad? Like what like at a nervous system level, how do they feel? Mm-hmm. What what kinds of what kinds of new thinking are you creating for them? Do they look at you as someone who can bring them new thinking? Or when they talk about you and when they think, are you someone that just solves their problems for them? Mm. Are, are, people, are people talking about you as someone who is associated with all the traits that in your head you want to be associated with? So it's a great way to start to, to get feedback and fine tune that transmission is by getting a sense of what other people are saying. And, and we often don't get it, especially in, in leadership roles as the, the higher up people get, the less they know about what others think about them because they don't get honest feedback all the time. But it's, it, in my view, it's, it's such a critical piece because you're, the impact you're having is really a, a, it, it hinges on how other people are receiving you. And so knowing what's the texture of the conversation they're having about you. Um, and it's got, it's, and it's, and there's another nuance. It's important. It's like, what's the conversation that they're having in their mind or, or in their body mind? What's the reaction response they're having as you communicate with them? And then what's their, what's the conversation they're having with other people in the company about you when you aren't around? So there's kind of like their inner, inner monologue and then there's the dialogue they have with other people. Um, and th- it is, it's, it's super important. I, 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 absolutely, utmost importance. Is there, is there ever a large, I mean, I presume there is a big disconnect between how people feel others are speaking about them or feeling about them and how um, others are actually feeling about them? I mean, inevitably, for me, for you, for anyone, there's going to be that gap. And the yeah, this this shows up a lot when people are getting anonymous or they're getting yeah, they're, I wouldn't say a not yeah anonymous feedback in the form of like a 360 evaluation where there's a series of interviews or questions that that go out on behalf of a certain leader and their peers and their direct reports and other people get to comment on them. I talk to a lot of people when they've either just had those done or I help them get them administered. And there's, there's always a gap consistently, even for leaders who are, you know, even if the gap is very small, it's still there. And it's in, in my view, the work is not so much in like trying to fill every gap, but it's trying to figure out like, where is this feedback a hundred percent true? And, and the more important learning is like, how does the feedback land with you? Like what happens in your body? What happens to your thoughts when you receive it? Do you immediately get defensive? Most people do. It's hard not to. Mm-hmm. Are, you able to are you able to discern between what's true about the feedback and, and what you might think about the person who wrote it? Sometimes you actually know who wrote it in some cases. So, but there's just so much richness in that feedback. And that's why, in my opinion, 360 evaluations are, can be really valuable if they're done correctly, is that they give you access to other people's thoughts and feelings about you. And 
if you want to, you want to really go deep into, into your own personal growth, it's a great way to do it. Not just in doing it, but also in understanding how you respond to that feedback. Cause that's often the more important lesson for people. You know, I come across people like right away, just defend, defend, defend. And sometimes it's valid. And what I tell people a lot is I say, look, you know, 50% of, of feedback that you get is going to be by and large formed. It's going to be a projection of someone else's reality onto you, which means it's not, it's, it's not exactly true or it's not the truth. But the other 50% of it, there's generally something there for you. And so if you could look past the 50% that's just their projection onto you, you'll find the gold. Excellent. I think, uh, yeah, I kind of just realized six months ago that I'm not six foot eight with a full head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife had to tell me that one. Well, you know, that's why we have, you know, relationship is a, is a deep form of personal growth. Your partners, if they're, when they're brave, they'll tell you all kinds of things. Indeed. But no, I, 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 that, that speaks to me well, and quite a bit about what you spoke, spoke on just a few moments ago about, you know, how you're making people feel. And, and a quote that really resonates with me is that it's that one where people don't, don't always remember what you say but they'll always remember how you make them feel. Yeah, I think that was, it might be misattributed. A lot of quotes are, but I think that was Maya Angelou. Was it? Um, okay. Yeah. Um, there's another, Seth Godin's got a similar one, but yeah, there's, some, that, there's something to it. And yet we spend so little time in leadership development actually focusing on like, how do you feel? Like I often have clients, I'm talking to them, and I have to pause. I'm like, I, I, just, I just tightened. So how, however you just delivered that to me, I, it, it, didn't, it didn't work. It didn't sit right. So you can start to fine tune that, that, that transmission. Yeah, it's such a, and just like you mentioned, like it's such a micro level sometimes. Like I, what happened there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can like, you can feel the resentment behind the, the feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Feedback Feedback is, is, is one of the best testing grounds for this. And when I say feedback, I mean, I, I'm, I'm often working with leaders on how they give feedback to others. And there's, you know, I wrote a piece about this, but there's, a, there's all these models out there for giving feedback, right? Like SCARF and different acronyms, and they're all really great. Mm -hmm. um, I don't actually really care what model anyone uses. Like they, they, none of them are as important as the transmission of that feedback. And it's like, is it, it's gotta be super clean. Like if you're judging and resenting the person you're giving feedback to, man, they feel it so thick and your feedback has no value. Like, they're gonna put so, up the wall, yeah. And even if they don't want to, even if they want the feedback, as soon as they feel resentment, judgment, or some kind of like some stickiness to it, that you, your trustability level just goes in the toilet. And so that's what I work on with people. I'm like, look, you can use whatever model you want. I don't, I don't care. Let's just work on how, what your transmission is when you deliver it. Cause that will be, that's the 90% of the feedback that matters. The 10% about the structure of it. How it's communicated yeah. while, while maintaining rapport with an individual. <laughs> 
it's funny because I've been working on that quite a lot over the last few years with, with a lot of my clients. And it's a lot, well, just about articulating, articulating what's going on. So it's, I had a client a few hours ago who I, you know, said something to them and the, I could tell they clear, they clearly sighed with, um, you know, disgust about this suggestion that I had. And I said, well, okay, wait, what was that there? What was that sigh? And I feel like that really actually, when, when you approach it in an, in an amicable manner, it actually helps to strengthen that relationship and strengthen that rapport and have that individual, you know, ensure that they are being heard and they are being felt and they are being listened to which is what they want. Like people actually want to be felt more deeply. They actually want to be listened to. They want to have the trust and respect that they think they have earned, but often they've, they've earned it in their own minds. Indeed. Indeed. I'm, I'm going to tie this back in. I'm going to switch gears for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned I would tie this back in about a half an hour ago about <laughs> athletics. Okay. And um, it does tie in about leadership and development and everything like that. Because, yeah, as, as you talked about, you were somewhat of a sidelines sports player growing up, um, kind of narrowly making the team, worked a little bit better as a coach. However, I do know that you have undertaken some pretty, pretty significant endurance athletic achievements. Um, one that I will reference was that you wrote up to the top of Mount Seymour and back every day for a year in order to raise money for pancreatic cancer. Um, that's an incredible achievement. Um, let's talk about that a little bit more. What, uh, what got you into, well, what got you into cycling and, and, and what got you into, into that whole year long goal? Well, I mean, the, the, the story of my, of my team sports career dwindled shortly after 10th grade when I discovered endurance sports. Um, okay. Endurance sports are great for someone like me who's got a ton of discipline and I had a pretty good aerobic engine because um, I got really, if you get really good at doing repetitive motion over and over again, there's not much other skill that you need aside from very strong willpower and discipline. Right, so just I, go. Just go. So I, I found, um, I discovered rowing in, in high school, late in high school. Uh, I rode for many years um, at, the, at the provincial level. And then I vowed, I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. I don't wanna wake up at four o'clock in the morning. And I, I, the stress of competing is just too much. And uh, I'd, had a, you know, I'd had a good career as it were. And so I said, I'm just gonna buy a road bike and just enjoy riding a bike for a while. And that lasted about six months until I entered my first race. Oh boy, okay. <laughs> and then, it was it was just lights out. I, I got into the into the racing circuit and spent a decade um, racing road bikes. I'm talking about bicycles, just for your audience, just to make sure that they don't think I'm on a motorcycle. So I spent a bunch of time racing road bikes, and I I did that for a, a local team in Vancouver called Glotman Simpson Cycling, and I was on the board there and on the racing team. And our sole purpose is to. Um, help find a cure for pancreatic cancer, which has got, uh, I don't know if it's the lowest, but one of the lowest survival rates of all cancers. It's, I think it's potentially above 5% now, but not much. Oh, wow. And, and the re well, so every year we would host a fundraiser where we'd get, uh, you know, anyone who would want to join us from across the lower mainland or anywhere would come and we'd ride up Cypress Mountain in, in West Vancouver to raise money for the cause. And, and we did really well. 
We were, we're Canada's largest pancreatic cancer fundraiser. Um, I don't know what the number is that we're at now, but I believe we're over $2 million raised. And, wow. and so I, I was racing and, you know, enjoying being part of the club and, and all that. And, and I remember looking up one year and I realized, you know, a lot of bike racing is pretty selfish. You're kind of riding alone. You're doing it. There's no glory in it ever. It's an endurance sport. And so, and yeah, I, you know, I wasn't a professional or anything like that. So mm -hmm. amateur bike racing. So I said, well, how can I give back? And it just so happened that I had a specific skill around going uphill on a bike pretty quickly. And so I said, well, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Cypress Challenge, which is our fundraiser. I said, I want to make a big push. And so I said, in, in 2017, for the 10th anniversary, I'm going to do a million feet of vertical on a bike. Wow. Which, if, I, if you do the math, works out to riding up Mount Seymour, which is the hill where, where I live. I live right under Mount Seymour in Deep Cove. Riding that mountain every, once a day, every single day for a year. If you did that, you'd hit a million feet. And so I did that. Incredible. Uh, yeah. And it was, it, it felt, it felt good to have, I raised $15,000 for the charity. Uh, I learned, uh, an absolute ton, uh, more than I've learned from any book for sure in, in doing that feat that year. Um, and it, uh, <laughs> it was pretty grueling though. I tried to come back to racing in 2018 and I was just spent. I had nothing left. I basically took 2018 and kind of threw it out the window and, a little burnt um, out from cycling. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, well worth it though. It sounds like, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of what, of what I was able to achieve for the fundraiser, um, to build awareness and, and just to have done that. Um, I don't plan on doing it again, but yeah. Well, and like you said, I mean, it's, it's a huge achievement, not only for, like you said, awareness and the fundraiser, but it sounds like in, in your own personal development as well. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, we've got a few minutes. So I, I think I'll, I'll share that, like the, the biggest lesson in this whole thing was, a, I, I would say, a bit of a defeat. Um, I remember I finished, the, I finished early. I finished in November, in the middle of November, and I, I had until, until December 31st to complete the million feet. And I had a whole group of people come out to support me on the, on the final trip up Mount Seymour. The weather was pretty bleak. November in Vancouver is not pretty for those listening abroad. And we had a, we had a camera crew. We had CTV and global news there. They had champagne at the top. We got to the top and I got there and I, I felt nothing. And it took me a, a long time. I kind of faked my way through the celebration. And it took me a long time to dissect that. And I, I talked to my coach and not my cycling coach, but you know, my, my own personal coach. And what it boiled down to was it is the, like the, the lesson for me was the myth of achievement. So I had achieved this great feat and people were in awe of what I had achieved. I was, and, and I was, I was going, okay, so what next? Like I didn't even stop for a second to really appreciate what I had done. And it turned out that through that entire year, I really hadn't ever stopped to kind of sit with what I was doing. 
I was so busy doing that I forgot how to be as I was doing it. And that might sound a bit ethereal, but the way that I ride my bike up a mountain today versus then is entirely different. I mean, Mount Seymour is one of the most beautiful mountains that I've ever come across. And for 2017, it was like a blur. I was so focused on the achievement that I forgot about actually doing the thing, about so embodying the climb. Knowing what you know now from that, and you just mentioned the way you approach it now is different. How, how do you approach that now? What's, what's changed since you've done that and gone through the work to digest it? I mean, the work now is as I'm riding, I'm, I don't know, and the word, the verb's not trying, but what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm embodying the climber. I'm feeling the mountain as I climb. I'm breathing. I'm taking a moment to, to kind of feel out into the woods and all the other stuff that's going around so that the climb itself becomes the event as opposed to the arrival at the summit. And, and that's, it's fundamentally different. So I could be going quickly. I could be trying really hard and, and, and you know, breathing at a really heavy rate with a high heart rate and still do that. Or I could go slowly and do the same thing. But the texture of it is a texture of being as opposed to achieving or doing. Man, that is, that is huge. Um, it sounds like a marrying of, well, mindfulness with athleticism and, and kind of that old saying, you know, life's a, life's a journey, not necessarily a destination. Yeah. It's also, in my view, it's a testament to what embodiment really means. Like, am I the embodiment of a climate, of a climber, of a cyclist? Am I... Am I the embodiment of the mountain or am I, have I totally forgotten that there's a body attached to this mind that just spins and spins and spins as the pedal goes over and over and over? Well, wow. so, sounds like profound transformative discovery, linking it back to a lot of our discussion topics today. Yeah. Travis, awesome. Thanks so much. If people want more information about you and and what you do as a coach and as a leader or information about your podcast where can people go well it's it's pretty easy um although my name's a bit of a mouthful travisstreb.com is the your your one source of truth on all things travis streb um that's also my instagram handle and so you can you can find me there there to my knowledge, there's nobody else in, in Canada, let alone North America, with the same name as me. So you, you really can't get it wrong. TravisStreb.com. Look me up and I'd love to hear from you. That's awesome. I will include that in the show notes. And again, thanks so much for joining me. I learned a lot today and I really, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. That's yeah. I was, it was fun to be here, Joel. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Take care. Travis Dreb, folks, that was very interesting. Really cool to 
to talk with Travis and learn more about his approaches, um, what has influenced him. In fact, you know, I will put links to those books in the show notes. And again, travisstreb.com is kind of the one-stop shop for any more information on Travis. Uh, yeah, what a neat guy. What a neat guy. Really, really appreciated um, you know, what he brings to the table and just his overall disposition um, with respect to coaching. Not only people you know, wanting to help themselves and better themselves as individuals, but just better society as a whole. And, you know, I think that's just such a, a good a good lead, a good nod towards us as collective individuals on this ride of life together and what we can do to, to help each other out along the way and, and bring each other up. So, uh, again, g- great time speaking with Travis. So join us next, well, two weeks from now, actually. I will be sitting down with Ellie Greenwood. Ellie Greenwood is an ultra runner uh she holds some records in ultra running in i believe it's the 50 mile and 100 mile distances and again that's 100 miles that she runs for and she is a record holder so really going to be interesting to sit down with her and and just talk about her experiences and her her motivations and her drives and and what she gets out of running and you know how she might apply those experiences and those successes to everyday life. So until then, stay happy, stay healthy, folks. Have a good one.